Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, a migrant manhunt is underway for suspected terrorists who vanished after crossing the channel in a small boat. Plus, Sir Patrick Vallance has told the COVID inquiry that Boris Johnson was apparently bamboozled by science during the pandemic. Imagine that. Then the Sun World exclusive, President Zelensky talks about the ongoing conflict in the Middle East and its impact on his fight against Vladimir Putin. Good evening. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is your home of common sense. It's the start of another big week and we're coming at it all guns blazing because there's loads to get stuck into tonight. I mean, who doesn't want lower taxes? That's what Rishi Sunak is promising, just not yet. Who doesn't need a new Lord of Chipping Norton? And you all know who that is. And who would believe that Sadiq Khan has been a bit economical with the truth about his clean air statistics for London just before charging us all a load more money? And how surprising is it that we've got some dangerous terrorists on the loose that seem to have crossed the channel in a dinghy and then disappeared? Meanwhile, over at the BBC, they've been busy apologising again, more errors in their coverage of the war in Israel, and their Africa editor has been busy working as well. Not for the news channel, mind you. Oh, no. She's been busy as an expert witness at an immigration tribunal where lawyers called her to see if she could help stop the deportation of a gang rapist from Somalia. Wonderful, isn't it? Just stop Euler back on the streets, but this time the police are actually arresting them. So there is some good news. And you're not going to believe some of the things you hear over the next two hours, including a compilation of Joe Biden's worst moments this year. We're giving him a gift on his 81st birthday today, just as he finds out he's more unpopular than ever. We'll bring the latest from Patrick Vallance and the COVID inquiry. He had the gall to say today that he wasn't an expert. Well, he could have told us that sooner, couldn't he? And you'll also see the front pages of tomorrow's papers before anyone else. And I've even got a special bedtime story for you tonight as well. You won't want to miss that. It's all about a teddy. And it's all coming up on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let us get it on. Don't forget, you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones as well, 0344 499 Calls will cost just at the national rate. Now I've got a story that exposes just how weak our borders are, as if you didn't know. A manhunt is underway for a group of suspected terrorists who vanished after crossing the channel in a small boat. Security services have been monitoring six migrants with suspected links to Islamist groups, but three of them have completely disappeared. And this brings the number of suspected terrorists who reached the UK by small boat this year to 25, which is six more than last year's 19. Joining me in the studio is Telegraph columnist Madeleine Grant and Talk TV's international editor, Isabel Oakshot. Very good evening to both of you. Thank you so much for joining us. I mean, this is a story that sort of it doesn't surprise anybody, really, does it? I mean, we've had hundreds and hundreds of people coming over in single days at a time, thousands, tens of thousands of people coming last year, more, more tens of thousands coming this year. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised it's as low as 25 terrorists that we think have come across. I mean, it could be thousands, couldn't it? Oh, God. I mean, it doesn't bear thinking about. No. I just... I despair. Right? I utterly despair. I wonder what it will take for this government finally to wake up and actually protect us yes. as, as, we, as, as, as is utterly necessary, given the severity of what you've just been talking yeah. about. I mean, 
let us not forget that the Manchester Arena bomber was an, a, a migrant who came over here from, from Libya. Yeah. Uh, we have to be exceptionally careful about who we let in mm. and, and how we keep track of the market. Right. It seems like no one is doing that due di diligence right now. Well, it seems incredible, doesn't it, Isabel, that here we are uh, with a bunch of people that come into wherever it is, Dover, uh, on, on uh, border force boats or Ireland I boats. I thought under, under that system, they were kind of tagged, if you like. They were interviewed, even if it was only for a few moments. Uh, they were either given phones or have phones taken off them, and then they were sent off to some hotel. It obviously doesn't happen every single time. Well, it doesn't surprise me at all, I'm afraid. I mean, given the sheer numbers that are coming in, of course, not all of them are picked up by border force, although the majority of them are now, but there's certainly still some who arrive uh, undetected and disappear into, into basically into the dark economy. Right. And... Once they're in those hotels, they also disappear. They're at liberty to do what they want. Now, bear in mind that some of these people, a good significant proportion of them, deliberately throw away any documents they have identifying who they are to make it as difficult as possible and string out the process for as long as possible uh, on, on the part of our security agencies and the border force and all those involved in assessing their claim. So I, I'm not really surprised. I am actually quite surprised that it's as many as 25. I mean, that is simply appalling and blows apart the argument on the part of the liberal lefties who continually insist that the almost all of these people are fleeing war and terror and persecution and so on, and our hearts should go out to them. I mean, the reality is um, I strongly suspect, and the evidence points to the fact that the majority of them are economic opportunists. Now, within that, of course, there are some deserving cases, but there are many economic opportunists. That's partly why so many me young men are in those boats. If they're fleeing war and terror, where are their wives? Where are their sisters? Where are their girlfriends? Where are their mothers? Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that amongst them are some badans, but the idea that some 25 are terror suspects should be all anyone needs to know to stop this altogether. Right. And it comes, of course, after we know about these other um, people who have been here for a while, 19 foreign nationals, Madeline, uh, apparently linked with terror groups. They've all reached this country by small boat. They came last year. Most of them, we're told, have lodged asylum claims mm. and therefore cannot be deported because of human rights laws. I mean, it's a joke, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. Our hands are tied by our own system. And indeed, for people to point out the ridiculousness of a situation where we're, we're so hamstrung by our own kind of human rights mm. legislation and the, the framework uh, that currently exists, that we can't even deport people who are manifestly a national security threat. I remember reading earlier this year that I think there were 19 that were specifically linked to Islamic State. Yes. I mean, I, I you know, I, I just, I wonder how bad it has to get. Mm. What else needs to happen before we're actually able to yeah. use some teeth? But even if something does happen, Isabel, um, hopefully it doesn't, but even if it does, we still get all the lefty excuses that, well, you know, you have criminals here as well and, you know, there are people who are not very nice that were born in Britain and all of that. It's all fine, but, you know, it doesn't mean we have to import any more. And when I look at... The, the marches and the rallies that have been going on for the last five or six weeks, and you know that some of those rallies have been organised by at least one guy who's got a connection to Hamas, who lives in a council house up in Collindale, who came here under an assumed name and is now pretty much living here as a citizen. 
I mean, it's neither here nor there that we have homegrown criminals. As you say, it's completely ridiculous to suggest that that's an argument for importing some more. Right. Um, and I, I'm not sure it's fair to say or true to say that the government can't, that we're hamstrung by our own system, that government cannot deport these individuals or turn down their asylum claims. They can do so immediately. What it requires is robust leadership. And that has not been shown. There will undoubtedly be uh, legislation under which you can deport people who are known to be linked to terror. Um, it's just a question of the government not actually having the guts to use it. That is the problem, isn't it? But again, can we not get anything done? You know, you sit here today, uh, we've got Rishi Sunak making his little speech about let's have some lower taxes, but we can't really do it now, even though I've done a brilliant job bringing my inflation down. We know that we've got people coming here that are probably not very nice and that may be dangerous, but we can't really do anything about it. We'll just sort of kick it into the long grass. I mean, for years, they completely ignored the illegal migrants on the boats and just went, oh, it's all right, don't worry about it, it's a very small number. But they can't anymore, can they? No, they can't. I mean, there was a, a quite a long time where everyone, <clears throat> mainstream politics and also the mainstream media was ignoring this problem. Mm. And, uh, you know, for a long time, it was only basically Nigel Farage and, you know, occasional um, clips on GB, a channel like GB News, yeah. where they were actually... Or Talk discussed. TV. We did but start before then. Pre oh, maybe I'm wrong we about did. that. We okay, did start well, before. Well, there you go, Talk TV. But, yeah, no, we did. I mean, we've been going on for a long time. And now you, all you hear about, we put this Today programme on, which I don't do very often, but occasionally when I do, they're talking about small boat problems. And you go, blimey, yeah. you didn't do that four years ago. <laughs> well, I mean, it turns out that the public cares very, very much about the prospect of having completely porous borders mm. and inability to, to control who comes in and out of this country and a political class that basically puts up its hands and says, there's nothing I can do about this. It's too, it's too complicated. Um, and too difficult. And meanwhile, of course, we're the ones that have to pay for, at vast expense, the, the accommodation of, yes. of all these, these migrants. And as Isabel pointed out, it's often you know, very difficult to, um, to process people because they, they destroy all of their documentation. And you know, they, once they're into the system, there's a very complex sort of legal apparatus yeah. that swoops in to drag out and the we case pay for, for as, well. as long as possible. And it's, yeah, it's And as long as they need a lawyer, we'll pay for that. And as long as they've got another yeah. appeal, we'll pay for that. Yeah. You know, people make an absolute fortune. And what, from what you know, Isabel, about the, the security services, um, you know, it's obviously a tough job they've got. We, we find out that they've got hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of people under suspicion at any given time. But, I mean, if these characters have disappeared... We're told that they're probably cyber terrorists more than they are planning, uh, you know, a spectacular event, if you like. But what are the chances of finding them? Well, um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I must say I was quite surprised when they found that runaway prisoner who allegedly absconded from the London jail. That was rather encouraging. I thought that once that person had been on the loose for several days, there was no chance of tracking them down. So perhaps we should give our security services the benefit of the doubt. But the reality is that they are coping with an unknown scale of threat from all these people coming over. I mean, I wonder whether there's an argument that if you come over on a boat and you can't demonstrate or provide any compelling evidence as to where you started your journey or your country of origin, then your claim should be dismissed absolutely uh, on that basis. I mean, you must have started your journey somewhere. You must know where you were born, and it must be possible to furnish some evidence of your origin. So perhaps that should be a disqualification in and of itself. And if I can just pick up on this tax 
uh, thing because it is utterly ridiculous that apropos of nothing, uh, suddenly the government is saying, oh, it's time for tax cuts. You know, this government right. has positioned itself against tax cuts for the last forever. Uh, and why is it suddenly OK now? What, just because inflation stopped rising quite so rapidly or because they're in absolute panic as well they might be? Yeah. Well, isn't it funny that not only can they say that they may be able to give us some tax back, but uh, actually Rishi Sunak was warning that don't let Keir Starmer in, he'll be as bad as Liz Truss. I mean, it's not a very good Conservative line to start slagging <laughs> off uh, the previous Prime Minister, albeit that she was only in for a while, is it? <laughs> I mean, it's quite, it's quite the line, isn't it? Like, don't vote Labour. Yeah. It might be just as bad as the yeah, Conservatives, exactly. you know, the previous Conservatives. I mean, to be in Rishi Sunak's defence, he did call Liz Truss out on, on her plans yeah. and warned exactly what would Before happen. Before she did it, yeah. Yeah, and then it, it, he, was, he was proven right by that. Right. But that's still pretty cold comfort, given that it's the same party that was responsible for that, right. that is now seeking re-election on the basis of change. <laughs> right. And now he wants to be different from her because she was useless, apparently. But, you know, the members actually voted for her. It's a very odd position to hold. Let's talk a bit about the BBC, because uh, they're in trouble again. The BBC's Africa editor, Mary Harper, was hired by a gang rapist lawyer to try and block his deportation to Somalia. He'd been in jail for nine years uh, for a disgusting sex attack on a 16-year-old girl, but he claimed, or she claimed rather, that the terror group Al-Shabaab might punish him if they found out about his crime and added that he may struggle to find work in case they suspected him of being a British spy. This is one of the many Beeb gaffes this year. Only last week they had to apologise for a newsreader uh, who made the same major error about Israeli forces twice on air. They had to concede that... We said that medical teams and Arab speakers were being targeted. This was incorrect and misquoted a Reuters report. And that comes after weeks of failing to call Hamas exactly what it is, a terror group. And who could forget the BBC having to apologise for its inaccurate reporting on why Nigel Farage's bank account was actually closed. Um, and we're hearing every week now some kind of blunder by the BBC, which is starting to look like it's only ever a blunder in the same direction, which is to be rather more pleasant about what's going on uh, from the Palestine side and Hamas than it is coming from Israel. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, you've given some various examples there and they are quite different areas, but mm. certainly the coverage of Israel keeps falling into the same trap and you would think that they would have learned by now that you have to be very careful when reporting data and uh, facts um, on the ground that are coming out of um, Hamas spokes right. spokespeople, you know, the Gaza Health Ministry, is that's just Hamas. Uh, and the fact that uh, their pundits and their um, newsreaders keep making these mistakes again and again, um, even after, you know, at the previous incident with, we've had it with the Al-Shifa hospital and then with that other hospital a few weeks back where it was immediately reported um, that hundreds of people had died um, and from indiscriminate Israeli yes. airstrikes, and then it turned out that it was it was it was most likely far fewer than that, mm. and, and it was a mistargeted hospital, rocket that yeah. was coming from the this, from. And if anything, Gaza. the other the other one, uh, um, Isabel, was even worse, where they were claiming or more or less inferring uh, that basically, you know, um, the Israeli soldiers were walking through a hospital looking for Arab speakers to kill and looking for um, medics to also, uh, in some way, punish which was entirely wrong. It wasn't a misquoted Reuters report. It was a willfully, you know, misinterpreted Reuters report. And I've got Danny Cohen here, uh, who's the former head of TV, who's now saying this tonight, the BBC's credibility with the Jewish community is reaching a point of no return. On a daily basis, Britain's Jews are being harmed through its unbalanced reporting of the Israel-Hambus war and the failure of its senior management to get to grips with it. 
That's a pretty serious allegation, that. Very serious, but not not without foundation. Um, I mean, the big blundering corporation, as perhaps we need to rename it, just keeps getting it wrong, doesn't it? And with regard to the judgment of this BBC Africa correspondent who saw fit to presumably be paid a large amount of money to provide expert evidence that was effectively, in my view, to do something very unpatriotic, which was to try to keep a rapist in this country rather than have him return to his country of origin, which is where he rightfully ought to have been sent many, many years before it happened, is quite extraordinary. She didn't break any rules. What she broke was a fundamental uh, moral code, I think, there, because what she did, I think, was basically against the interests of our own country and the people in it and the safety and well-being of folk here. And I think it's astonishing that such a misjudgment was made. But maybe I shouldn't be so surprised because the BBC is packed with bleeding heart lefties who think the interest and the well-being of a rapist like that uh, should perhaps come before uh, everybody else. Well, this is the trouble, isn't it, Madeline? They're more concerned about whether he doesn't get a job back in Somalia uh, than they are about the fact that he might roam around West London and do a bit more raping. I mean, it's just... If it wasn't, if the stakes weren't so high, if it wasn't so tragic with such incredibly high stakes, I mean, imagine if you're one of this man's victims mm. and you see that, you know, fortunes are being spent on legal aid for, yeah. for, for your rapist. And, and then on the most flimsy pretext, it's being said that his, his right to, you know, have a peaceful home life trumps your right for, for true justice. Um, I mean, what, how that must feel. But, you know, if, if it wasn't so tragic, it would almost be laughable because we really are kind of through the looking glass. We are this in point. this through the looking glass. Yeah. Thing. You're absolutely right. We shall explore that more, I think. <laughs> Madeline, thank you very much indeed. Madeline Grant will be back with us again soon. Isabel, I think you're going to stay with us to, for some more talk about COVID and the inquiry. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, Patrick Vallance claims former Prime Minister Boris Johnson was clearly bamboozled by the science during the pandemic, while Dominic Cummings says our current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, just let people die. Stay tuned for some more bombshells from the COVID inquiry. Uh, it's unbelievable stuff. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the place to be, by the way. Boris Johnson was clearly bamboozled by the science, apparently, according to the COVID pandemic during it. And it was often a challenge to help him understand the graphs and the data. That's the bombshell claim from the government's chief scientific advisor uh, during the pandemic, who has been giving all, uh, evidence to the public inquiry today. Sir Patrick Vallance recalled the former prime minister having his head in his hands a lot and forgetting information he'd only been told a few hours ago. I think I'm right in saying that the Prime Minister at the time gave up science when he was 15. And I think he'd be the first to admit it wasn't his forte and that he did struggle with some of the concepts and we did need to repeat them often. It was hard work sometimes to try and make sure that he had understood what a particular graph or piece of data was saying. Boris Johnson and uh, Dominic Cummings were extremely keen to get scientific advice. So they had a, I would say, a disproportionate interest in getting science advice. But um, as you can see, it wasn't always easy to provide it in a way that was understood and actionable uh, by the Prime Minister. 
Still with me is Talk TV's international editor, Isabel Oakshire. I'm also joined by consultant virologist and lecturer at Cambridge University, Dr Chris Smith. Uh, Chris, welcome uh, to the Hello. conversation. Isabel, I find that a bit snobbish, to be honest. Um, if a scientist is having trouble explaining science to a prime minister, surely it's because he's not explaining it right, isn't it? Well, on this very rare occasion, my sympathies actually do lie with Boris Johnson. Um, <laughs> you know, as a journalist over the years, I've dealt with many scientists. And the one thing that they are generally very poor at is actually communication. So, you know, we all know that for whatever Boris Johnson's many faults may be, he is a highly, highly intelligent man. And I really struggle to believe that he found it too difficult to grasp the concepts that he needed to grasp. Mm. He probably didn't need to know anything in minute detail. He needed to have a basic grasp of what was going on. And I suspect, really, that the fault lay with those who were communicating it uh, poorly. This was only one of a number of quite jaw-dropping moments in the evidence from Patrick Vallance. Very different tone uh, to that of Dominic Cummings. No expletives, no... Um, you know, no damning criticism of colleagues. Valance uh, was very careful in the words that he chose, but he had made a number of quite sensational uh, late night entries into his private notebooks and diaries uh, in which he criticised the lack of, very weak lack of leadership and also most sensationally uh, reported Dominic Cummings suggesting that Rishi Sunak, the then chancellor, uh, thought it would be okay if people just died. Mm. Uh, that was, for me, the moment I sort of went, wow. Um, you know, if that quote had got out at the time, it would have caused an absolute furore. But it is, of course, reported. It's he said, she said. We don't know whether Rishi Sunak ever expressed anything like those sentiments. It came via Dominic Cummings, and I think everything from him has to go through a bit of a truth filter. Yes, I think so. And, and Dr Chris, let me come to you, because, I mean, I think under the circumstances that we know of and that we've heard about and some of the other things that Patrick Vallance said today, I mean, he said himself the science is not something that you can just follow because it isn't simply the science. It's, it's you know, it moves around. It's not always exactly what you want it to be. And so, presumably, there was an awful lot of confusion inside um, Downing Street and inside even the scientific community um, because an awful lot of what they were looking at was behavioural science as well, wasn't it? Yeah, he also made one interesting point, which is that he said one of Boris Johnson's tactics was often to say the opposite of what he'd been told in order to challenge the person who'd said it, just to see if they were saying the same thing twice, to make sure that they weren't wavering. So that's, I think, certainly true, uh, that, that, that uh, you, you can actually turn it round mm. and see if someone repeats themselves. And I think that's probably quite valid. The other interesting thing that Patrick Ballance said was he opened at the, at the opening moments this morning. They dwelled quite heavily on the fact that there's very low representation of people from a scientific background recruited into the graduate programme in the civil service. And he used the statistic of about 90% of people come from an arts background, about 10% from a scientific background, and made the case that perhaps there would be a more receptive audience among civil servants if more were recruited from a STEM background and said there is now a target to try to increase that to about 50%. That's due to report next year. So it was a, it was a mixed bag today. Um, and, I, and I think there's a range of very interesting things that surfaced. And for me, that statistic was, was very interesting. But also the question of he was directly challenged on 
whether or not we could have avoided that first lockdown. And we saw some interesting data, some interesting sentiments being expressed there that were less clear when that happened for real. And, and I think we saw a new insight into those today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a scientist yourself, I mean, is there a reason why people who study science don't particularly want to get into politics? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was funny, wasn't it? Because one of the other points that Patrick Balance made was that this is the first time we've really heard politicians hiding behind the science by using phrases like, we are following the science, as though it's holding some massive cosh over them. Yeah. You don't see, this was the example given by another uh, witness at the, at, the, at the inquiry, which is you don't see us saying we're following the economics because of making certain financial decisions, mm. for example. But I think that science is a difficult thing to communicate. And when you've got a situation that's very fast-paced, it's moving at a terrific rate with all kinds of different opinions and perspectives, and especially where stats get involved. You know there's that old saying, lies, damn lies, and statistics. It's very hard to keep track on statistics in your mind when they're changing, when there's large numbers of numbers being thrown at you. And I think when you're in a decision-making role, it is really important to make sure the information presented to you is clear and precise. And it can be very, very difficult under ferocious situations like this would have been to actually just have very clear, precise information to go on. There would have been enormous numbers of facts flying around, different opinions, tempers would have been raging. And I think it's very, very easy to condemn this in after, after the fact. But when you're, when you're in that sort of situation, and, and I was sort of in a situation in, in the hospital over, over COVID where we were having meetings to try to decide how we were going to manage our cases and keep our infection rates down. And it was very, very challenging at the time. So I do have sympathy for yeah. people who across COVID had to make those sorts of decisions on an hourly basis, 24-7 yeah, in some cases. I think so. Yeah. And back to you, Isabel. I mean, it was very clear, wasn't it, from what we know so far from the work you've done, from the WhatsApp messages that you've seen, uh, from the stuff we did, uh, we saw with the Telegraph uh, project that you were involved with. You know, there was so much information and so much counter information that it was almost impossible to navigate, you know, the true path, if you like. You know, people would be saying, well, this is what they're doing in, in the EU, this is what they're doing in America, this is what they're doing in Florida, that's not what they're doing in Sweden. I mean, it was a very difficult time. I'm not trying to give, you know, sort of succour and comfort to the politicians, but I can imagine it was a very tough place to be. Oh, undoubtedly, and uh, much of what we heard today was about the Prime Minister's apparent indecision in autumn 2020, where instinctively he really, really did not want to have another lockdown. And he was doing what prime ministers should and listening to a range of voices. And he brought in a couple of uh, lockdown, what we'd now call lockdown sceptics into Downing Street, who gave a very different um, perspective on the options that were available to him. And he did vacillate and he did wrestle with that decision and frankly, I don't think he should be blamed for wrestling with it. Uh, from my perspective, he should have trusted his instincts. Uh, and unfortunately, in the end, he caved in to the tremendous pressure uh, to continue with lockdowns for an awful lot longer after that. But I think it's unfair uh, to condemn him for sometimes wanting to hear a range of views and having some doubts in his own mind as to the best path, because there were so many different things to weigh up. And as Patrick Valance said today, you know, much of this was political decision making. Yeah. It had to be. I mean, Patrick Valance complained that he had asked for clarity from the government on a, a so-called acceptable rate of mortality. Well, I understand why, as a scientist, he wanted that. 
But can you imagine politically it getting out that the mm. government had set a figure on how many how many people it was okay to die? I mean, that would have been uh, extraordinarily difficult politically to justify. And this goes to the heart of it, doesn't it? It's that tension between the ultra cautious approach, mm. perhaps suggested by science, if you want to eliminate deaths where possible, are never going to be possible to eliminate, but to utterly minimise it, and the politics of it, where you've got to consider health in the round. What are the consequences, not just the economic consequences, but the broader health consequences, which we're now feeling, of shutting everything down, locking everyone up and turning uh, the NHS into a COVID yeah. service. And in many ways, that's what that's the stuff that I'm interested in. I'm waiting to see whether those questions get asked as well. But Isabel Oakeshott, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Dr Chris Smith as well, thank you very much indeed. You. You're watching uh, The Independent Republic, Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, I'm going to ask whether the war in the Middle East has drawn attention away from the war in Ukraine. That's two wars now. And President Zelensky issues a desperate plea to not be forgotten. Uh, he's got an exclusive interview with The Sun. We'll bring that to you. Coming next. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We have got a massive surprise for you coming up. Later on in the show, we'll be bringing you a first look at all of the front pages. But before anything else, we've got an exclusive look at the Sun's front page. And today, uh, they've got a big headline, uh, Putin has tried to kill me five times. It's an interview Jerome Starkey has done. Uh, he's defence editor of The Sun, of course. He's with uh, Vladimir um, and uh, Zelensky. And he's saying uh, that the war in the Middle East has kind of drawn international attention away from the war uh, in Ukraine. Um, and Putin has tried to kill me five times, just part of that interview. Um, now, what he's trying to do is make a desperate plea to say we're at a critical juncture in Ukraine and in a world-exclusive interview with Jerome Starkey, Basically, President Zelensky is saying, look, just do not forget that we are here. And here's what he had to say. I think not less five, six, not less. Interesting, the last information that there is the plan, uh, which I shared with you out of the camps that uh, we, I mean, that's uh, the beginning of our meeting that that uh, they want very much and the name of operation is Maidan 3. It means to change the president. Maybe it's not by killing. I mean, it's, it's, it's changing. They, they will use any, any instruments they have. I'm delighted to say Jerome joins me now from Krakow uh, in Poland. Jerome, firstly, thanks for staying up so late for us tonight. I know uh, it's pretty late where you are. Um, what can you tell us about how this all happened? Um, Putin has tried to kill me five times, quite a headline. Um, what is the mood uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the place where Vladimir Zelensky is? Well, the mood is pretty business as usual, to be honest. I mean, we met him inside his office in, in central Kiev. Uh, it was the first time I'd been inside. It's very, as you'd expect, a very heavily guarded, defended uh, compound, although quite low key from the outside. The security, uh, when you get there, uh, very intense. I mean, when we went in to meet him, we had to surrender everything, including our pens, as we went through various layers of sort of airport style uh, security. Um, the message from uh, Vladimir Zelensky, as you sort of hinted at, he's concerned that the world's attention has moved away from Ukraine and understandably onto Israel, given 
what has happened last month, but he believes that plays into Russia's hands. He believes that Russia may even have had a hand in supporting, enabling, or at least uh, encouraging somehow Hamas or Hamas's supporters, be that Iran. Russia has a an important military relationship with Iran, a relationship that's grown increasingly important during the course of the war in Ukraine, because Iran has supplied uh, a number, hundreds of Shahid kamikaze one-way drones, which have been increasingly used to hit Ukraine's infrastructure. So there's a lot going on. Understandably, President Zelensky is approaching some two-year anniversary. In February next year, we'll mark two years since Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And whilst the first year we saw, uh, you know, the horror and violence of the invasion, and we were then we then witnessed really over that first year the astonishing Ukrainian resistance. We saw the retreat from Kyiv, uh, the Russian retreat from Kharkiv in the northeast, and then about this time last year we saw the retreat from Kherson in the south. But over the next 12 months, over the second year more or less of, of that war, Ukraine's progress has been slower, and uh, President Zelensky acknowledged that. He acknowledged that progress on land, on the battlefield, had not been as fast as he would have liked. But he pointed to the fact that progress at sea, progress in the Black Sea, had been significant. And in fact, Russia's Black Sea fleet had been forced uh, to retreat eastwards. But he's acutely aware, uh, I think, from this conversation, the lack of progress on land the counteroffensive, the much vaunted counteroffensive, had failed to take as much ground as he had hoped, as many of Ukraine's backers had hoped. And indeed, that has perhaps eroded to some extent, undermined to some extent, the, the confidence of some of Ukraine's allies as to whether or not Ukraine can indeed expel Russia from its territory. That remains President Zelensky's stated ambition for this conflict. He wants to push Russia back. He wants to reclaim Ukraine's 1991 independence borders. Now, Britain has said it will continue to support Ukraine as long as it takes uh, to defeat Russia. Um, ostensibly, many, many other allies have said the same. But what we've seen in America, for example, in recent weeks is that a cabal of Republicans are concerned that the war in Ukraine is, in their words, a sort of never-ending conflict, a never-ending stalemate, and they're reluctant. In fact, they've managed to block a White House attempt to send $60 billion of aid and military aid to Ukraine. And of course, that's a huge concern to Ukraine. Now, you know, these are the machinations of politics. The money, uh, most people, both, uh, you know, most experts on this believe the money will make it there eventually. But nonetheless, the symbol that such a holdup in Congress sends to Ukraine, sends to the people who are fighting on the front lines, uh, it's clearly very, very worrying. And that concern has filtered through. They've heard that loud and clear. So there's concern in Ukraine over the, the long-term support for their conflict. President Zelensky makes the point. He believes they are fighting for shared common values with the United States, with the United Kingdom, You know, fighting for values like freedom and democracy against what they see as the oppression of Vladimir Putin's Russia and one of the things that uh, Zelensky said to to us yesterday was that you know if at the moment it is Ukrainian men and women who are paying a price with their lives they they're paying you know they are paying a blood cost to this conflict so for all Ukraine's donors that is coming in terms of you know cash donations in humanitarian aid donations in 
military aid or, or materiel. Zelensky's message is that if his country is not successful, then he believes the war will spread to NATO territory and it's only a matter of time if Ukraine falls before Russia finds itself fighting toe-to-toe -to -toe with NATO soldiers on NATO soil. Yeah, and that must be particularly uh, sort of felt where you are now in Poland, which is obviously you know, just over the border from the western side of, uh, of Ukraine. Uh, absolutely. What's interesting, though, of course, is that the relationship between Ukraine and Poland has not been entirely straightforward over the course of this la the last 21 months. Initially, and indeed sort of systemically, Ukraine, Poland rather, has been one of Ukraine's staunchest and most loyal allies. We've seen that in, on two fronts, both in terms of you know, the amount of refugees from Ukraine who have come here to Poland, and we've also seen it in terms of the amount of military aid that Poland supplied, particularly early on. You know, I'm sure your viewers, Mike, will have, you know, remember perhaps when Britain uh, sent Challenger 2 tanks uh, to Ukraine. We sent a, a squadron's worth. There was a lot of debate about whether the Germans were going to, were going to allow the Leopard 2s to be sent to Ukraine. But in fact, before all of that, while those arguments were going back and forth, Ukraine, uh, Poland rather, was just getting on with it. Poland had a huge stockpile of Soviet-era armor, the T-72 Russian-designed tanks that Ukraine also used. Poland had them in its armory and they handed them over to Ukraine because, crucially, Ukraine soldiers could use them straight away. They were familiar with them. They didn't need to train on them. They knew these vehicles. They knew how to fight them. They knew how to service them, how to maintain them, how to get them into battle. And so that support quickly from Poland has been absolutely key. But unfortunately, the relationship has soured slightly because of claims in Poland, a feeling in Poland that uh, Ukraine has been dumping its grain exports here. It's a complicated sort of trade dynamic, but because Russia closed the Black Sea, or at least severely limited what Ukraine could export via the Black Sea, most of Ukraine's grain exports for a long period of time came out over land, and they came out into neighboring countries like Poland. And that, wherever that grain was ultimately intended for, it, it had a, a knock-on effect on the neighboring markets. And, and Polish farmers felt that Ukraine was dumping its products here, that grain prices were falling, Polish farmers were paying the price. And that creates a sort of domestic political backlash here. So, you know, Ukraine is fighting for its survival in the midst of an incredibly complicated web of competing and complicated political alliances. I mean, with the relationship between neighbours, we've seen Slovakia, for example, uh, recently cancel £43 million worth of planned military aid to Ukraine because there's been a change of government there. The new left-leaning government has decided uh, that it does not want to support, that it does not want to support uh, Ukraine's war effort. It said that people in Slovakia have more important problems. And, and the prime minister, the new prime minister, has said that he thinks uh, the EU should play the role of peacemaker rather than arms dealer. Of course, you know, the majority of nations in the EU see their role as you know, defenders of Ukraine against an aggressive and belligerent Russia.
Yes, indeed. Jerome, good to talk to you. Thank you so much again. We've got the front page uh, that Jerome has written. Jerome Starkey, defence editor at The Sun. Putin has tried to kill me five times. World exclusive interview with uh, Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, Jerome uh, reporting in from Poland. Let's talk now, though, uh, to Simon Diggins, um, of course, and Alan Mendoza. Um, Alan Mendoza from the uh, Henry Jackson Society, of course. Um, let me start with you, Alan. Um, it's obviously um, a, a tricky situation for uh, Vladimir Zelensky because we're a long way into the conflict now um, and there's now another conflict elsewhere which could be connected, as we heard Jerome say there. Um, but there's an interesting kind of, um, I suppose, angle coming from Russia, from their point of view, that they could be helping Iran, who could be helping Hamas. Well, I think um, if you look at it, we, we know that Iran is helping Hamas. We know that's been the case for a long time. We know the Iranian military links with Hamas. So that bit is uh, unequivocally correct. We also know that Iran has supplied uh, drones uh, to Russia. There is a play through both sides there. The Russians are also helping the Iranians in different ways. So I think these are you know, indisputable facts that there's a connection here. And in a sense, what we're seeing, aren't we, is sort of the, the tying together of different conflicts with similar participants. Uh, and on either side, what you're seeing are the forces, if you like, of the unfree world. They're the ones who are, as always, causing um, a breakdown in international uh, relations, a, a war to erupt. And we are dealing with those consequences. That's something we as a free world are going to have to uh, get used to dealing with because it's only going to get worse over the next few years. Yes. Well, let me come to you, Simon. You're a military man, military analyst, um, former British Army officer. You've got a lot of knowledge about some of the countries we're talking about here. Um, is this something which you can kind of track as very much connected? The Ukraine war, first of all, right. and now suddenly what's happening in Israel? No, I, I think there's very much a sort of connection going on. Um, Iran's axis of resistance, as, as Dr. Mendoza said, you know, it's always included Hamas and Hezbollah, and those links are there. And it's very interesting, very early after the, 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 the uh, abysmal attack by Hamas on October 7th, uh, there was reports of uh, elements of Hamas talking to Putin in Russia as well, just kind of making the point that the whole thing is, is connected. It absolutely makes the point about our defences, uh, and there's a very interesting article today uh, in, the, in the Times by William Hague, finally, you know, a senior conservative politician coming out and saying that our attitude towards defence is abysmally low. You know, we don't have, we've got the smallest armed forces we've had. I think this is Napoleonic times, you know, 2.1, 2.25% uh, of, of our GDP gain on it, not even the 2.5% we've been promising for a while. You know, so the, the days of us treating defence as a kind of optional expenditure are absolutely over. Uh, and that we are living in a very more much more dangerous world than we have been for a very long time. So all these things are related. We as the West, we as Britain, have very distinct interests in maintaining uh, countries that support our values, uh, and that will require an increase in defence spending. So there's a distinct linkage there. And are you concerned at all um, in terms of the way that it will be sort of going forward from here, Simon? You know, because the American... Um, administration doesn't appear to be completely together on all of this you know there's already a lot of noise going on over there that they're not happy with biden's foreign policy i mean is it key that america stays with britain on this i think i think unfortunately the answer to that is yes and the reason for that is simply that because of our lack of capacity and our inability to actually generate additional capacity at short notice we are reliant on the americans so to do uh, whether it be from i mean we're hoping that within next year that uh, President Zelensky and the Ukrainians will get the F-16s. F-16 is an American fighter and all the spare parts, things that, that will go with that. 
Uh, the, the debate we've heard over attack on missiles and just sh the sheer quantity of material that's required to be produced. It requires America's backing. A very simple example, if I may, which was that Britain rightly promised to support uh, the Ukrainians with some additional 100,000 155 millimeter rounds, uh, but we couldn't make them ourselves. They had to go out to contract elsewhere. The only country in the West that's made a significant effort to up its industrial capacity to meet its defense need is America. And that's why we need to make sure that America is aligned with the rest of us. And that will be harder over, over the coming months and coming years. Um, Alan, just finally to you, with what Simon's just said there, that Britain has got a very depleted armed forces situation going on. I mean, what do you make of the, the public's taste for this to go on for a long time? Well, um, I think, you know, Colonel Dickens is absolutely right to highlight the uh, state of the uh, military in the UK and where we need to kind of change track. What may have been appropriate 15 years ago, 20 years ago, clearly isn't now. We thought there was a peace dividend. There is no peace dividend. In fact, it turns out that the future looks uh, much nastier and more brutish than the past. What I will say is that the British people have always shown themselves to be on the right side of these issues. I think you can see the prominence, uh, the public support for the Ukrainian position, for example, even when British people were, were hurting themselves in the pocket as a result of it, they knew what was right. They knew the dangers of giving in to appeasement like this. And they're also, I think, fully aware, and polling has shown this, of the dangers of a, of a terrorist entity like Hamas being able to strike a democratic ally and getting away with it. I think uh, the British people have always been effective. They understand uh, where right is, where might is wrong, and they will stand on the right side of the debate. And I, I'm, I'm confident that in the coming decade, as they have in the past, we will have a body of public support. Now, whether we have politicians that buy into that, that's a different story, but it's up to the public to make their feelings felt and to re remind politicians that this country has stood for that and will continue doing so. Anna Mendoza, Simon Diggins, thank you very much indeed. Well, it's up to the public. There you go, 0344 499 1000 is the number to call us on and let us know uh, whether you're still uh, with the Ukraine battle and whether you will uh, be able to support Ukraine uh, and Israel in both of these things. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Uh, stay right there, though, because after the break, uh, we're going to hear what you have to say uh, on the home of free speech. 0344 499 1000. Give me a ring. We'll see you after this. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV. Now it's time for Taking the Mic. Now, just when you thought it was safe to head back out onto the streets after a weekend of more rallying, marching, sit-ins and roadblocks, those idiots from Just Stop Oil have launched yet another campaign. Starting today, they're calling for people to join them every single day this week at midday. Well, of course, they don't get out of bed before 10 and march with them until they get arrested. Happily, the police seem to have relearned how to do their jobs and the climate bozos only managed a couple of minutes on the streets before they were apprehended and lifted. The problem is, they're not just moaning about the weather anymore, now they're calling for a bleeding ceasefire in Gaza as well. Over the weekend, a few morons from Just Stop Oil were dragged off the concourse at Waterloo Station, even though it's not really very clear what they were actually doing there at a Palestinian sit-in, but they were locked up probably for their own good. Now their mummies are asking for them to be freed and they're all moaning about the state of our democracy. Listen, you complete planks. The police have finally found a law that they understand. 
They took in 15 of you under Section 7 of the Public Order Act. And can we just have one week, please, when the traffic isn't held up, when you overprivileged champagne socialists stay at home with your muesli and your Volvos, when you don't sit down in the road? This nation has become an embarrassment. I would please entreat all of you not to encourage them, whatever you do. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up in the next hour, we've got some very, very exciting news for you because we're going to be talking to uh, the one man who needs to be talked to at the moment, Nick Sebastian Gorka. I'm also going to dig my teeth into Sadiq Khan. Uh, he claims, uh, well, no, he doesn't claim, it is claimed that he misled the public about the benefits of ULES. Imagine my shock. Of course he did. Uh, we are going to talk to uh, Sebastian Gorka because guess what? It's uh, Joe Biden's 81st birthday and he's going to talk about Trump as well. He's fighting a gagging order, branding it an attack on his free speech. It's all coming up in the next hour. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Good evening. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham on talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and of course, we're on your smart speaker as well. Tonight, police are accused of pandering to just the boil eco clowns as footage shows an officer joining a protester on the floor. Uh, and he can't be trusted. The Advertising Standards Authority claims London Mayor Sadiq Khan misled the public about the benefits of the ultra low emission zone. You knew that. And feeling stressed? Find out why you might want to make a call to your local farm to give your endorphins a boost. We've got loads coming up. Absolutely loads coming up in this hour. We're going to talk to Sebastian Gorka over the United States of America. He's just been with Donald Trump, believe it or not. And don't forget, you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones as well. 0344 499 1000 calls will cost at the national rate. But let's talk a little bit about Sadiq Khan because he is at it again. That's right. The Tin Pot Mayor of London has been caught out. And it will come as no surprise to any of you who have been watching me for a little while. Slippery Sadiq has been busy telling everyone that the expanded ULED zone would clear up the city's air quality. I didn't believe it then, and neither did you. In fact, the only people that were stupid enough to fall for it were the eco-zealots and the climate nutters. Oh, yeah, and the Green Party as well. Well, now it turns out, and this is actually official, his claims weren't true. 
The Advertising Standards Authority, no less, has found that two Transport for London adverts were misleading because they didn't make it clear that Sadiq Khan's statistics were all based on estimates, modelling and not actual figures. Those are their words. And their preliminary findings were leaked at the weekend in another blow to Khan's credibility. And to make matters worse, just today, he's outlawed the building of a London version of The Sphere in Las Vegas, where you too have been performing an amazing new show. It could have been another great London landmark in the east of the city near the Olympic Park. But now he's kiboshed it. Typically, he's caved in to the environmentalists because they thought it would be too bright. Well, that's something we can't accuse him of being. What a bloody disgrace. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Earlier today, Piers Morgan sat down with Andrew Tate, who told Piers he wasn't being serious when he repeatedly called himself a pimp in the past. Have a look. I exaggerated on the internet nine years ago for comedic effect. I'd walk into a nightclub and there'd be girls at my table, like every other man who walks into a nightclub, and I'd say, pimpin'. Oh no, put me in jail. 93 days was not enough with the cockroaches. I should go back. This is a matrix attack, Pierce. Every single person, every single man out there has done things worse than I've done. In fact, I will argue, if you put 99.9% .9 of men through the level of scrutiny I've been through by, by multiple federal agencies, you will find a lot worse than him saying he was a pimp on the internet nine years ago. You will find actual genuine crime. And I've done nothing. I live true to God. He's done nothing, he says. You can see that interview, of course, on YouTube. It ran uh, tonight right here on Talk TV just before this show. But let's cross the Atlantic now because... Poor old Joe Biden turns 81 today, a milestone that comes as the ageing commander-in-chief weighs the prospect of running for yet another election. But as questions about his age continue to swirl, uh, is he up to the task? Can he serve in the White House? The gaff-prone president did what he does best over the weekend and delivered another cringe-inducing moment. And I love your ears. I love them. They're really cool. What's your name? Catherine. Catherine, what a beautiful name. That's my mommy's name. Well, nice to see. How old are you, 17? Six. Six? Well, it's not the first time Joe slipped up, and I highly doubt it'll be his last. So we sent our international presenter, Maddie Hale, uh, to the task of digging through Biden's best gaffes. Amazingly, the clip is actually 10 minutes long, but here's some of his best moments on the stage. One of Joe Biden's biggest opponents throughout his presidency has been the teleprompter. President Biden has been under intense criticism for his inability to master the art of public speaking. Let me start off with two words. Made in America. Made in America. Do you think he backed off because of that? No, no, I'm just saying. I just found it interesting that... Biden's being a popular, a, pop, a, a, pop, a cop, a Biden's being an extremist. To accommodate the Russian oligarchs uh, and make sure we take their, take their, their ill-begotten gains, <laughs> we're going to accommodate them. We're going to seize their yachts, their luxury homes, and other ill-begotten gains of Putin's kleptocracy. Uh, yeah, kleptocracy and klep the guys who are the kleptocracies. <laughs> Cisco Systems and Cyber, Cyber Bastion, a diaspora-owned small business. It is noteworthy that the percentage of women who register to vote and cast a ballot is consistently higher than the percentage of the men who do so. End of quote. Repeat the line. 
women are not without electoral and or political or, or maybe precise, not and or. <laughs> Sorry, repeat the line. Um, not only does he read the bits he's not supposed to read, but then he can't read the bits that he is supposed to read. It's absolutely extraordinary that this man uh, is continuing to run uh, inside the White House as if he is, in fact, the President of the United States of America. Unbelievable, isn't it? Joining me now, though, uh, Donald Trump's former aide and friend of the programme, Dr Sebastian Gorka, uh, who has just been with, as he calls him, the boss, uh, President Donald Trump. Sebastian, great to see you. Thank you very much for joining us. I mean, I'm literally laughing my socks off here as I watch Joe Biden. He's 81 today, but he's not getting any better, is he? No, no, and I'm sitting here right outside West Palm Beach Airport after seeing the guy who, you know, really should be the president, who has more energy than I did at half his age. Uh, it's stunning. I mean, you, you laugh, and especially at the read-that-line-again moment. Mm. But let's remind all of your viewers, Mike, this is the individual who 24 hours a day, seven days a week, within 30 feet of his body, has a military aid with a large briefcase that is the nuclear football yeah. with which he could launch thousands of nuclear weapons and ignite World War III. That's who we're talking about. This isn't some random politician or somebody's grandpa or some retired senator. This is the commander-in-chief, and that's why we've had the disastrous three years we've had. Remember, under my old boss, no new wars. No new wars. Then this guy comes in, we surrender Afghanistan. Vlad realized it, it's time to take Ukraine. And now we we're on the precipice of World War III in the Middle East. That's because President Trump isn't in the White House and this senile, doddering old man is. It is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Because they now kind of watch him like a hawk because we've all seen the other videos, which we didn't play. I'm not sure whether it's because of my production staff was feeling too sorry for him. The, the, the ones of him falling down flat on his face, uh, that naval thing. You know, today he makes a mistake by confusing not only Taylor Swift um, with um, Britney Spears, but he also seems to confuse them all with Beyonce. He doesn't seem to know who's who. He thinks Beyonce is playing down in uh, Brazil. He thinks that Britney Spears is currently on tour. Um, does he know anything about the real world right now? Well, look, uh, he's 81 years old. Uh, maybe he's not up on the latest chart toppers, but that's kind of irrelevant. On the campaign stage, so that's four years ago, standing next to him are his wife, and his sister, and he doesn't... <laughs> I know your, your viewers I'm aren't going to believe this, but go and look. He actually doesn't know which is his wife right. and which is his sister. And when he gets it wrong, he has to apologise and says, oh, oh, no, sorry, you're my wife and, and, and you're my sister. That was four years ago, Mike. Yeah. I mean, it is extraordinary. We're just watching him now where he was struggling to put his jacket on as he was getting out of Marine One. And, I mean... But, I mean, even the Democrats now, because I've started to watch some of the, um, uh, the, the stuff that you put out as well uh, in the most recent couple of weeks, also on an awful, awful lot of the other channels over there, a lot of Democrats are now saying, get rid of this guy. Look, when CNN two weeks ago does two segments back-to-back -back on this guy being too old, in the last 10 days, we've had the Washington Post, ABC and New York Times all run polls. This is the mainstream, lying, legacy, left-wing media. All of them ran polls saying President Trump is crushing it mm. in these swing states. 
four out of five swing states, those crucial American states, have my former boss between five and seven points ahead of Biden. If you let, look, that, that's the Washington Post. That's the New York Times. If the elections were today, Mike, President Trump would stroll back into the Oval Office. And meanwhile, in the Republican camp, they're still having these meaningless um, Republican debates, aren't they? Which, I mean, talk about after the Lord Mayor's show. I mean, why are they even bothering? <laughs> yeah, it's funny you should mention that. Um, I can't go into details, but, but I was sitting with the president about an hour ago, and I mentioned this issue, and he said, OK, uh, you stay quiet. I'm going to call up Ronan Romney McDaniel, the head of the RNC, the Republican National Congress, and I'll, I'll let you listen to exactly that point. When you are 55 points before the nearest competitor, whether it's the governor of Florida, whether it's the former UN ambassador, Nikki Haley, when you're 50 points ahead, Mike, why are you having debate? It's, it's done and dusted. Yeah. It's over. Right. Yeah, debate's over. There is no point in having it. But also, all they're really doing is showing themselves up every single time it happens to be on. Um, not one of them seems to me to be fit for office, it seems. One, what the debate before last, when you have Nikki Haley and Senator Tim Scott, who are from the same state, again, don't believe me, watch it on YouTube, arguing over who bought the curtains in the UN, UN ambassador's residence, it's, it's like a bad game of charade. It's an embarrassment. It is the furthest thing from presidential you could imagine. You're arguing over TikTok posts and the price of the curtains, yeah, it uh, it doesn't look good. Doesn't look good. No. And what else was uh, was the boss uh, saying today? Because he's been in the news a little bit this week. Uh, he's having a bit of a row over his free speech. There was a strange um, tangent he went off on at a rally recently about the uh, the P gate scenario. What's all that about? Look, the thing that is of greatest concern to him, as it should be in any country, is open borders. We've got at least 8 million illegals that we know of have come into the country in the last eight million. Years. And the other thing is, yeah, 8 million. Right. That we know of. That we know of. If you add that, the so-called getaways, the people who aren't encountered at all by Customs and Border Patrol, you can safely double that. So we're talking about 16 million. So, you know, I know you've got issues with the boat people coming across from Calais. But we, we have a slightly larger problem here. We're talking about millions of people. If 1%, if half a percent are jihadi, are pro-Hamas, that is divisional-sized assets that could make 9-11 or 7-7 yeah. look like a walk in the park. So right. number one, the border we discussed. And number two that should be concerned to everyone is free and fair elections. If you don't have... There are many states in America, and I, I know this will shock people, where you don't have to show ID to vote. Mexico has voter ID. India, with over a billion people, has have voter ID. This is rife for exploitation. And whatever you think about 2020, the fact that we don't have voter ID in the state where I live in Virginia, Mike, we have 45 days of voting. We have a Republican governor, and we have a month. It's not election day. It's month and a half day of voting. That's just Monty Python. That's yeah. just insanity and ripe for abuse. Well, we just had the voter ID stuff come in, and despite all the lefties yeah. claiming it was going to completely ruin everything and nobody was going to be able to count on the votes that they could count on, suddenly when they won a couple of elections, they were like, yeah, maybe it's not so bad after all. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, funny how that works, right? 
It's absolutely pathetic. Sebastian, listen, I know you've got places to go, people to see. Lovely to talk to you. We'll come back to you very soon uh, when you're back in, uh, in the homestead of Washington, D.C. Uh, Sebastian Gorka there reporting in fresh from his conversation with Donald Trump in Mar-a-Lago, in Florida. Uh, he's at West Palm Beach, a place I know very well. And he's off back to the, uh, the heartland of the Democrats in Washington, D.C. Good luck to you, sir. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Don't bloody well move anywhere because we're going to head to our correspondent in Iceland for the next sh- bit of the show. There's a looming eruption going on there. And I'm also going to find out why the world of woke has suddenly turned to animals. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Over in Iceland, there's a volcanic eruption about to happen, apparently. Our correspondent, Nick Ellaby, sent us this report from the checkpoint to Grindavik, which is being evacuated. Good evening, Mike. At the moment, things are quite quiet, but that could mean one of two things. Either the lava and magma, which is under the ground, underneath that town and power plant and the Blue Lagoon, some 15 kilometres behind me, has calmed down and may not erupt, or, as happened three years ago in this same region of southwest Iceland, there's a little calm before the storm, and that happened then. In the last 48 hours here uh, on the Reykjanes Peninsula in southwest Iceland, there has been no more earthquakes. But what happened in 2021, a similar thing in the same volcanic system. They had a lot, a lot of earthquakes and then two days of silence before a big eruption. The problem with this Uh, potential eruption at the moment is a lot of that magma is underneath a big population centre, the town of Grindavik, which has already been evacuated. Some 4,000 people had to leave their homes at very, very short notice. I spoke to a young resident, Kristen, who told me, one, how it felt to have to leave her home, and also what it was like to see all that destruction before her very eyes. It breaks my heart, actually. It's very sad. And knowing just, like, because I don't think you can, can you rebuild after that? The earth is sinking, it's going like, probably lava will hit there. It's very sad to think it will be just, could be out of existence. When you see it, like it's so different when you see it in photos, but when you see it right in front of you, it's somehow just uh, cut you deeper because it's strange. It's a town I've lived in since 2008 and seeing all of it, it's very scary. So the residents of Grindavik are kind of in this nightmarish limbo at the moment. They're currently being allowed in in dribs and drabs in about sort of five minutes or ten minutes to grab as many possessions as they can from their homes uh, before that potential eruption, which experts are telling us could happen in the next 48 hours. There's another couple of things going on as well. Now, nobody really knows where that magma is going to come up, but what you've got near the town as well is a huge hydroelectric and geothermal power plant. Now, if the lava hits that, you're going to have 30,000 homes in southwest Iceland with no heating because they're all heated by hot water. And you've also got the Blue Lagoon as well, a big tourist hotspot, these geothermal springs. The ground underneath there is moving up and down. So the authorities have built two big walls, one down at the bottom, a big kind of horseshoe shape to try and give them time to protect that power plant, and another one up the mountain. As I say, experts differ as to when that lava might come up but it is expected to erupt in the next 48 hours mike thanks very much indeed nick that looks a bit grim over there doesn't it uh, but now it's time for something which is not grim it's the world of woke the world of woke 
There's a saying in business, you'll never be poor as long as there are plenty of gullible people out there willing to pay good money for your idea. Now imagine you're stressed out, in need of a cuddle, willing to travel hundreds of miles to feel better, and think nothing of spending £40 on your well-being. Welcome to the latest from the world of woke. That's right, farmer Fiona Wilson's had a great idea. When it became clear she couldn't make any more money running dairy cattle and milking them for all they were worth, now she's milking the punters instead in a manner of speaking. Her business, Dumble Farm in Yorkshire, has now retired five dairy cows, and they've got names, Grandma Snowflake, Crocus, Cloud, Soft Face, Cuddle Puff and Kerry. And instead of working, they sit around all day being cuddled. That's right, I said cuddled. Despite their size and their considerable pong, people are climbing over each other to pay 40 quid each for a two-hour session with the cattle because it's the latest wellness concept. Fiona said, some people really get into it. Sit with them, give them a hug and lay their heads on them. Some people just sit with them and find it quite relaxing because cows are not, wait for it, judgmental. Really? Talk about Dumble and Dumber. The world of work. Dear me, uh, I don't know what to say, really. Uh, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham is still here on Talk TV. Um, people like you and me grew up with teddy bears but apparently not the generation of today, they have teddy theirs. I have a clip for you. Have a look. If I tell you, said Thomas, you might not be my friend anymore. I'll always be your friend, Thomas. Thomas the teddy took a deep breath. I need to be myself, Errol. In my heart, I've always known that I'm a girl, Teddy. Not a boy, Teddy. I wish my name was Tilly, not Thomas. Is that why you've been so sad? Errol asked. I don't care if you're a girl, Teddy, or a boy, Teddy. What matters is that you are my friend. Dear God. I wish they'd all just bugger off, frankly. But anyway, um, before we get to any more of the teddy business, I'm now joined by my panel. Deputy Editor for Conservative Home, Henry Hill, Head of Communications at the IEA, Reem Ibrahim, and Research Fellow at the Bow Group, uh, Ben Lochnane. Uh, welcome to all of you. Now, before we go do anything, I just want to read you a little bedtime story, shall we? So this is a story about a teddy, which, as far as I know, doesn't have any genitalia. <laughs> so I'm not even sure how they know whether it's a man or a boy, or a woman, or a girl. But Thomas the Teddy apparently got very depressed and didn't feel like playing. I'm looking at the pictures, and you can see them here. Uh, very nicely illustrated book. This is a Bloomsbury children's book, by the way. Thomas the Teddy wasn't so sure that he could cheer up because he said there was something wrong. Thomas the Teddy took a deep breath. Errol asked him, I don't care if you're a girl Teddy or a boy Teddy. You're the best friend a bear could have. I mean, really? Teddy has a new name. Let me introduce you to Tilly. What a great name. I mean, I don't know who they're aiming this at, really, but, I mean, it's for kids. What the hell's going on? I nearly missed the camera there. Um, <laughs> so it, it's a good bedtime story, because that almost sent me to sleep. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the problem. But it is meant to be a bedtime story. It is supposed to be a bedtime story. I think the problem is that this stuff is being taught to children. Now, I actually have no issue with children being taught that trans people exist. There are many people in this world that identify as transgender. How soon do you think children should be told that? Well, I mean, whatever... You know, 10 months? 
11 when they no, start to walk. I think as soon as as soon they're, as they're the told. Yeah. No, yeah, when they're in the get womb. Get the ultrasound yeah. in. Yeah. Give them, so in fact, know, read them that book while they're in the womb. Well, yeah. look, I, yeah. I think it's fine that they're taught that these people exist. The problem with this book in particular is that they're being told that this is fact, that somebody mm. can just become a boy, uh, be born a boy and then become a girl. That should not be taught right. to children as fact. Also, the sense is that there's something wrong uh, with Thomas because he, he wants to be himself. Well, he's Thomas, isn't he? You he's know, Thomas. that's he's his name. His name's Teddy. Teddy. Also, he Teddy doesn't actually name. exist. He's not actually alive. You're right, Henry. <laughs> yeah. well, it's like You're okay. Yeah, yeah, look, no. He thought he was coming in for a political discussion. No, no, it's, yeah. no. no it's absolutely. I mean, what is going on? I mean, it, it, the weird. It is always unfortunate when you try and create one of these stories and you use a parable that just really doesn't work. Right? Yeah. As you say, the, mm. the teddy bear is an inanimate. Right. It's not a sexual creature yeah. at no. all. Right. Uh, no. So it's, it's, it does. It has no gender. It's very, it's, and I think the other slightly. The, and again, I, I think I share some of Reem's views in that ultimately this stuff is around in society, and therefore I think there is a case for teaching kids about some of it at some point. Yeah. At least because that way you kind of forearm them yeah. against the grifters, mm. right? If you had a yes. sensible sort of fact-based class where, like, this is what transgenderism, yeah. you know, is. But the, the other weird thing is, is Teddy, presumably, in whatever world that is, is very young, given the age of the... I would imagine Right. So. And, and one of the big issues with the trans debate is that actually, you know, encouraging children, yeah. people who are not adults, to make major life-changing mm. decisions, going on puberty blockers, things yeah. that can ruin their entire life. Yes. So I think there's a... There's a and, and especially, it's especially odd if you're not even going through puberty yet, because right. frankly, how do you know? Right. Right? Like, like gender dysphoria... Well, that's the trouble. I mean, gen- that's, and that is a big argument that we have about the age. This is why yeah. I asked you about the age, because the age is important, I think. Gender dysphoria is in very large part about how you relate to your body yeah. as you develop sexually, yeah. which you're not at that age, right. right? So it's a very strange target audience for this book. Yeah. I mean, I must say, I took against uh, Thomas and his friend at the beginning of the book because they cycle around a lot together, one, and they plant a lot of vegetables. You know, these are not people I wish to consult with, quite He's saying it's not even the worst thing about them. No. It was the transit. No. Cycling. It's the cycling, <laughs> cycling. and the bloody vegetables. We, yeah. hate, we notoriously hate cyclists here. Yeah, we really do. But uh, sadly, they continue to cycle around, even when he's called Tilly. But, you know, a teddy, I've always assumed, and I had a Winnie the Pooh, I was very proud of it, um, which was bought for me by my parents at Heels. No, Winnie um, the Pooh's a girl. Winnie the Pooh was a teddy bear. I mean, I didn't care whether he was a boy or a girl. It didn't come into it. Yeah, but it came, Winnie, the, Winnie the Pooh is a girl. The, the, the Says who? Said, the, I, think, I think something came out a couple of years ago. I don't believe I had no it. idea. I don't so think that's right. It what came out. Some, no. Something, something, something happened. Do you mean A.A. Mill? Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't a team of writers. It's not like Friends. I don't know. Right. You know <laughs> but something you know, came out. A.A. Mill the wrote the book. Winnie the Pooh is actually a It's the writers behind the A.A. Mill cinematic universe. Oh, I see. I've decided. I suppose do, you mean, do you mean when Disney remade it well, into some kind of maybe. woke nightmare? But I suppose the point is that it doesn't really matter. It's a right. teddy bear and it's a gender... Well, I suppose gender-neutral sort of term for What about character. Eeyore? What's he? Oh, what's he? Eeyore. Eeyore? Oh, is in the donkey? Yeah. Oh, I say boy. He's depressed. Yeah, he, he, had a ba- no, he had babies with, with the dragon. What? What? Did what? Dragon that's, that's in Winnie the Pooh. Oh, no. <laughs> 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 totally, totally I mean, you think we'll go back to your childhood again? <laughs> You've obviously well, missed out. I've also been to Poosticks Bridge, which is in Ashdown Forest, which is just south of Tunbridge Wells. Mm. You know, it is a real place where Winnie the Pooh did live, not as a woman. I'm pretty sure you got that wrong. And, and the other, Come on, guys, help me out here. For a lot of the people who, who, who sort of advocate for trans rights and so on, like what they want, or at least what they claim to want, is a world in which gender doesn't matter. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, th- if there is one time in your life right. when gender doesn't matter, it's when you're in primary school. Yeah, right? and you like, have a teddy bear that has no genitalia. You know, you're, you're all just running around and, you know, leaving snails in each other's shoes and all the rest of it, and then you get a bit older and all of a right. sudden, you know, girls and boys snails. are different, you yeah. start noticing. Yes. But, like, when you're that age, you don't. And so what they're doing is they're actually taking 
all of those issues mm. and concerns, which they're going to grow into. Yeah. Like, and they're injecting it into the one point in someone's life when yeah. they've kind of got what they want. And, right. and, and it doesn't really matter whether you're a boy or a girl. And I suppose this entire conversation about whether or not Winnie the Pooh or, or Eeyore, you, whatever, whichever character... I've got a note for you on a, that. Oh, go on. It, it says, Winnie the Pooh is a boy. He's referred oh. to as he in A.A. Milne's books. And in the Disney cartoons, his voice has always been provided by a man. But it turns out that the real-life bear that he is named after was actually a female black bear called Winnie. I've never heard that okay. before. Well, so Winnie really the Pooh is trans. <laughs> Started as a female bear, became yeah. male. I don't yeah. know. I've never okay, heard I that. I suppose the uh, point is that as a child, it does not matter. Exactly. No. As a child, these conversations about gender I had a do penguin. not even come across your mind. I had a penguin called Pompidou, right, named after the French president. I was quite an intellectual child. Oh, of course. And, um, <laughs> and I never, ever asked the question whether... He was a he or a she. He was a he. He was Pompidou. He was a penguin, you know. I don't think children particularly care. No. You know, I cared when I lost him at um, um, a yeah. service stop. I way think to an awful lot of this is always about the parents, much more than the children. The children aren't driving this, yeah, right? They're, they're kids. Too. Right, it's always about the parents who are like, we, well, we, yeah, we, don't yeah. want to, we don't want to raise them judgmentally, you know, we've not assigned them a, a gender. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you're just, you're just going to make them be children. You're just going to make this kid suffer, right? Let them be children. We're seeing all these Hollywood kids, aren't we, who are currently trans. You know, these young Hollywood yeah. kids, like the boy with the long hair. And yeah, yeah. I think there's about half a dozen Hollywood stars. And, you know, it's no coincidence that it's happening there, is it? Well, it's a fashionable thing now, mm. isn't it? It's like yeah, my trans kid, it's my, my new handbag. Yes. It's absolutely virtue signalling. And it's where effectively these sort of woke parents come, come along and say, actually, I'm such a social justice warrior. I'm such a good person yeah. because I've let my child do all these things. But actually, they've probably been indoctrinating their child. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is, if you actually look at the, 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 the science behind gender dysphoria, mm. the actual kind of mental health mm. behind it, it's a vanishingly small number of people. It really now, is. There's two arguments. There's two separate debates, I think. There's one, do those people need appropriate support? And, and that's yeah. fine. But the idea that you need to de-gender mm. every space mm. or inject gender into everything for the sake of what mm. is a fraction of a percentage of the population, like, it's absolutely nuts. Yeah. 99% yeah. of the I think the, time, the media has a lot to take the blame for as well because there's an awful lot of, you know, what I would recall uh, as kind of, you know, traditional media, um, in whichever form you want to take it who are kind of obsessed with it as well. Well, definitely establishment media. I mean, the BBC came out, came out and said, what, there are 100 genders? Mm. But also, I think social media is a huge issue. I mean, I see this on TikTok all the time. Mm. I see it on Instagram all the time. Back when I was... Well, look what happened to Emma Barnett the other day. I mean, Emma Barnett, who I would not normally be behind in, in many situations, but I was definitely behind her in this one when she took on the, uh, the new CEO of that endometriosis charity, which was a really good interview. She really put the woman bloke on the spot. Yeah. And it was it was and then she was then subjected to this vile sort of abuse from from the trans lobby. Yeah, they they target and they do target journalists. Mm. You read about some of the uh, female campaigners for campaigning for protected women's spaces. Yeah. And I you know one of my interests is, is martial arts, right? Yeah. And there's a re it's it's one of the most bizarre places because if if there's any sport where the fact that there are like physiological differences yes. between men and women matters. Absolutely. It's Combat sports, of course. right? And you had a, a, a female boxer the other day pulled out of a fight mm. because she found out at the last minute that her opponent was trans. Right. And best will in the world, I don't even if you don't, I don't care what your what pronouns you want right. or anything. If you're a natal male, right? right you've been, you've you, you had testosterone when you yeah. went through puberty. You're heavier. You've got heavier muscle mass, higher. And it's density, dangerous. And you're going to absolutely. Yeah. And you and you watch these fights, and you because sometimes they do happen. And you're and you are literally watching a male body. Maybe mm. socially they want to be a woman, whatever. You're watching yeah. a male bodied person beat mm. up a woman. Yeah. And you're like, this is nuts. How has this been allowed? 
to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we can laugh about these sort of children's stories and how ridiculous they really do seem, but this is where it becomes a life-or-death situation. And it really angers me when women are being told, in particular, that they are being transphobic for not allowing men in their female spaces. And we've got to remember here the reason why men and women have separate spaces when, when things are vulnerable, when things are personal, or indeed in sports, is because biologically men are stronger than women. Mm. And that is a biological fact that yeah. we just cannot get away from. You can't get away from it. Um, I've got to talk to you because you're all, I would say, conservatives. Lord Cameron unveiled today in the uh, House of Lords. Lord Cameron of Chipping Norton, yeah. which sort of yeah. sounds like a comedy um, peerage, well, doesn't it? They're running out of places. Yeah. Uh, they're g- genuinely... Cause I think there's... Is there not another Lord Cameron as well? There was. I mean, there was. I mean, I, I think the surname thing he can't yeah. help, in fairness. But, no, they, they're running out of designations because <laughs> there are an awful lot of lords. You're not allowed to use, like, big cities. So you've got to pick somewhere tiny. So there's been two lords for some submerged island in London that hasn't been on the surface. Two Lord Cameron, Doggerland or something. Yeah, 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 yeah precisely. Yeah. So, so it's actually it's one of the it's obviously one of the tiniest violin stories wow. in the British Constitution. But it is this is why you end up with Lord Thingy of X and the County of right. Y and the Z yeah. because like they've all the good names have been used up, all the good places have been used up by previous people. I think we've got too many of them for goodness sake. Oh, they why, have got too many. Well, they should just money. get rid of all the Lib Dems and that would help. Well, uh, an awful get rid of the Lib Dems. We've got 92 hereditary peers. I'm sorry, but being yeah. born yeah. somewhere. Yeah, great. No, I prefer the Reddit. I thought they were 99, but we've got we've got a little uh, we've got a little yeah. clip of uh, my Lord Cameron of Chipping Norton. I think let's have a look. Witness ourselves at Westminster, the 17th day of November, in the second year of our reign. By warrant, under the King's sign manual. I, David. Lord Cameron of Chipping Norton, do swear by Almighty God that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to His Majesty King Charles, his heirs and successors, according to law. So help me God. This is the man that's going to be representing the United Kingdom on the world stage. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is ridiculous. I hope he's going to be dressed like that every time he goes anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He should. I am Lord Cameron of I'd, Chipping Norton as I'd he have, walks into the UN or something. I'd have well, more respect for him if he did. I know, yeah, I'm, just, that's I'm just surprised that he said, I, David. I thought it, I thought it was Dave. Dave? He's always Dave, Dave, isn't he? Yeah. Cool Dave. Hug yeah. a hoodie Dave. But now he's a David Baron Cameron of... Wherever. Do they still have real ermine or have they changed that? Oh, I mean, it is real ermine. The tragic thing is most of them rent it because it's very expensive. Uh, uh. Uh, so, so, that so, a that is a tragic thing. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it yeah. is. So, it very, really very, is. so relatively, because actually that full kit cost about 10 grand. Mm. Uh, well, he could afford that. Though. Well, I mean, he maybe, maybe he, he's actually him got him personally, but at least he's not letting the taxpayer foot the bill for his garments. But they never. I mean, they don't. They don't anyway. But a lot of them. Yeah. They, you go to Eden Ravenscroft, and you're like, actually, I just want to rent it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use it twice. I'm going to use it twice. Now, let me ask you guys another question about the COVID inquiry today. Um, uh, Patrick Valance was there. I don't know how much of it. If you saw any of it, but yeah. what did you make of that? What ben, did it, with the well, Sunak situation? Well, well, or? the Sunak situation. Talking about how. Um, Boris Johnson was bamboozled by the science and, you know, just again giving this kind of impression that politicians are stupid, we're scientists, we're really clever, you know, they should have listened to us and then everybody would have been fine. That's kind of the narrative, isn't it? It's your classic sort of two years down going, not me, Gov, it's all those other guys to blame, it's nothing to do with me, I tried my best, they're they're the... And they were too stupid. I mean, it's this kind of snobbery that comes from some people who think they've got a degree that's better than everybody else's. And I think think the really frustrating thing about this, uh, and I haven't seen Sir Patrick's advice, but you get this a lot from from people like Chris Whitty, is that they don't recognise or they seem not to recognise that it's the job of politicians to accept trade-offs. They're public Mm -hmm. health officials, Mm. so fine. Their job is to be like, this is the way 
where you have the absolute minimum number right. of deaths. The job of the politicians is to be like, okay, but that's going to have an impact on right. the economy, mm. on people's freedoms and mental health, right. and I'm going to have to make a decision. And yet, what you want? And also, they're not they're not sure that it's going to be the we, best well, way to go. That's a whole other question. Yeah. But even even the point is, even if it was nailed on, right? Even if it was absolutely nailed mm. on, there's still trade-offs. Yeah. And, and yet, mm. there's a, there's this attitude from some of the scientists where they're like, well, we told them to do this. And therefore, objectively, that's what they should have done. It's like, no, 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 that's not how this works. We have a democratic government. You have a set of priorities. Right. There are competing priorities, and politicians have to make really difficult decisions. Yeah. It's not the case that they should do whatever you told them to do. Exactly. No, one, at one point, Valen said, I'm not an expert. And I was <laughs> like, oh, no, you well, tell us. Well, this... I thought that was your whole job, yeah. to be an expert. Well, indeed, but this is the point. There is always going to be evidence to support any policy you want. If the government yeah. were tomorrow to say we're going to ban all television studios, I'm sure they'd be able to find some scientific right. evidence but to make that the argument. The Metropolitan Police would say, no, we need clarification. Well, well, indeed, but, but this is the point, right? You can find evidence for almost anything. And yeah. actually, often what happens in politics is, is politicians choose a way forward and then they find the evidence yeah. subsequently. Yeah. I would always say, I would always blame the mad scientists. I mean, there's gone wrong in the world. It's all been down to mad scientists, not really mad politicians, but that's okay. another story. We'll be back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Stay tuned, uh, because the panel will stay here. We'll have a look at some of the stories uh, making the big news in the, in the pages of the papers tomorrow. We'll see you after this. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic. You're Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The panel are still here. We're going to get back to them uh, in a moment. But earlier today, Piers Morgan sat down with Andrew Tate. He told Piers he wasn't being serious when he repeatedly called himself a pimp in the past. Have a look. I exaggerated on the internet nine years ago for comedic effect. I'd walk into a nightclub and there'd be girls at my table, like every other man who walks into a nightclub, and I'd say, pimp him. Oh, no, put me in jail. 93 days was not enough with the cockroaches. I should go back. This is a matrix attack, Piers. Every single person, every single man out there has done things worse than I've done. In fact, I will argue, if you put 99.9% .9 of men through the level of scrutiny I've been through by, by multiple federal agencies, you will find a lot worse than him saying he was a pimp on the internet nine years ago. You will find actual genuine crime. And I've done nothing. I live true to God. Well, Ben, what do you make of that? It's incredible, really. It's like, no, when I said I was a pimp, I didn't literally mean a pimp. No. But to be fair This is him, one of the great lines of defence now, isn't yeah, it? People to, say, yeah, I was only joking. Yeah, but to be fair to him, if you take, like, any rapper and the things that they've said, they call themselves a pimp 15 times in 30 seconds in yeah. their songs. I mean, you know, he, he may have a point that he wasn't being literal and they're taking him a little bit too much. Yeah. Uh, too literal. I think this rapper point is really interesting. You get rappers all the time talking about how they've sexually assaulted multiple women. Nobody takes them up on that. You don't see any criminal investigations as a result of no. those accusations. So I do think that in some ways you can't take people's speech as an indictment yeah. of, of, of a criminal activity. No. I mean, I suppose the problem with Francis Tate, Henry, is that he's been arrested. He was held in jail in Romania for a long time. They don't still seem to have come up with a case yeah. against him, really. He's still under house arrest. He still has, and I've got teenage uh, sons, you know, he still has an incredible effect on young men, mm. many of whom um, may not worship the ground that he walks on, but are very, you know, very keen to look at anything he does. Yeah, uh, and it's unfortunate in a way that you end up kind of, if, if it does turn out there's absolutely nothing to this, you end up kind of martyring him. Like, yeah. I've not I've not got much time for Andrew Tate or any or, or his his message. And I think he wildly overplayed it in that clip when he's like, 99% of men will, will be worse than me. It's like, come along, Andrew. Yeah. Like, play, you know, mm. like, come on. Um, but the Bugatti's outside. But nonetheless, if you... If you <laughs> They're not as rich as him, yeah, I think, is the yeah, point. Pre pre yeah, precisely. But I, I, I think that if you want to combat what Andrew, what Andrew Tate is doing, there are ways to do that. 
And if it does turn out that there's nothing to these allegations, that's absolutely one not of the, the way But one go. of the reasons why there are people who listen to what Andrew Tate has to say is because of things like that bloody book, yeah. you know, because your kids are going to school um, and they're learning from the age of about five mm. all the way up until they get to be about 15. Um, that this is the way that their life is going to be. Yep. And they see Andrew Tate and go, well, maybe there's an alternative. Yeah, and I think it's about this, this cultural change. I mean, Andrew Tate represents men who feel as though, A, they, they might not have father figures that are fantastic as you, Mike, but they, they might, might also not. not feel as though, you know, there is this kind of feminization of men, mm, yeah. men feel as though it's, it's, it's sort of toxic masculinity if, if they are being a, a yeah. man's man. Yeah. And I actually think this has damaged so many young men. Now, Andrew Tate has stepped in and said, you know, get rid of all of that. This mm. is what a man should be. And unfortunately, it's a very, very radical version of what that is. Yeah. I think Henry's right. It means that those, those people that end up going to those sort of radical perspectives of what men should be, rather than looking at it from a more moderate perspective. But I think there's a, I think there's a problem for sort of more mainstream critics in that you want mm. to, you know, young men, young boys, they need role models yes. that are actually attractive yeah. to them, yeah. right? And, you know, again, whether or not you like them or loathe them, um, there have been people like that before. There's Andrew Tate. Before that, there was I'm now Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Uh, I like Jordan. And, 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 yeah, and the thing that really struck me recently was that was Caitlin Moran did a book called What About Men, yeah. right? And it was uh, she did this big book on feminism. Yeah. And now she's like, I'm really worried about the boys. And you read it, and it's like all of the positive traits that she attaches to, to masculinity <laughs> are basically, and she even says this, they're the traits you have in a good dog, yeah. right? Yeah. And she's like, what do men need? Uh, men need feminism, uh, uh, and they need to, they need all the things that women that women have. They need better relationships with their mothers. And you're reading this, and you're like, no, 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 no. You have to be a. They, you have to have a message for young men mm, yeah. that is attractive to them, and that and that can't be which is, yeah, which entirely is not, progressive. No, it shouldn't yeah. be Andrew Tate's level of like no, exactly. rancid misogyny. And you don't have yeah. to not you know want women to go to work and make sure they yeah. stay in the kitchen yeah. and all that stuff. But I there mean, has to be there's an plenty ele- of ground in between. There has to be an element of it which sort of very progressive people aren't going to like because it would have to venerate you know conventionally masculine yeah. virtues, and because there's pe- there seems to be utterly unwilling to do that. Uh, they leave this void into yeah. which people like Andrew Tate step. Yeah, but doesn't indeed. this just go back to the point that men and women are different? And I think that in society at the moment, people have forgotten that men and women are different because and fulfill different role roles. roles. Well, why. exactly. But I think it's a, it's a wider thing about the separation. But do women have role models? I mean, do you have a role model as a well, woman? My mother is my role model, okay. I would say. But right. I think it's more so about the, the fact that, you know, I one day want to be a mother and I want to one day, you know, potentially fulfil that traditional female role. Not every woman wants mm. to fulfil that kind of Most role. Most women don't themselves. want to be mothers. I mean, that's just the yeah, way it goes. Yeah, and, and, and people are free to make those choices. But I think it's unfortunate that, that boys now are forced to look up to men mm. like Andrew Tate. Yeah, well, they're not really. Um, let's move on to the front pages. Uh, ben, front page of The Sun... Big interview with uh, Jerome Starkey over in Kiev. He's gone over to find Vladimir Zelensky. Putin has tried to kill me five times, uh, he says. Yeah, well... Not very good at it, then. Clearly not, but also five times. It's it's a lot in the past, you know... It is quite a lot, Surely you'd put a lot of effort into one (coughs) big attempt rather than just constantly lobbing shots from the side or whatever. That's not the Russian approach to anything else. No, it's not. (laughs) That's not how they do war. No. (laughs) No, they just keep going. Yeah, precisely. They they send masses of infantry at trenches and they send masses of assassins at people. You only need one to get through. But then what's the point, really, in killing Zelensky? Surely just be replaced by someone else. Well, exactly right. I mean, Zelensky's worried, of course, that the, 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 the war... Uh, kind of yeah. has been forgotten because there's another war now going on which everybody's marching yeah. around uh, all over the world talking about and, and so everybody sort of has forgotten about Ukraine. Yeah, it does feel a bit like he left out at the end of that Putin's tried to kill me five times, please send me more money. Mm. So there's possibly the south. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the problem Ukraine has is that they, you know, they had this big offensive, right, uh, which was an absolute military 
disaster for yeah. them. And that was based entirely on around trying to keep Western interest mm. in the war because the ugly reality is that you've basically got trench warfare in eastern mm. Ukraine. Yeah. Russia is very big and is capable of churning out cheap weapons. That's going to be a stalemate mm. basically forever. And what Zelensky's worried about, understandably, is that eventually Western patients will run out or he'll run out of people. There was an amazing piece in Time last month which mm. said the average age of a soldier in the Ukrainian army is now up in their 40s. Really? Right? Yeah, mm. they are run, they, there is a serious risk if they just keep up this attritional yeah. warfare that they, that they run out of young men wow. to do the fighting. We also wow. underestimate how large the Russian population really is. Yeah. And, yeah. This comes back to and they can keep conscripting them. Well, they? well, exactly. And, you know, effectively what you have in Russia, and this has been the case, I mean, for the past 150 years, every time they've ever fought a war, yeah. is that, you know, they, they've got unlimited supply, effectively yeah. unlimited supply of unskilled soldiers, effectively yeah. people they can conscript that might not necessarily be as skilled as, as say, a British soldier or, or potentially even a Ukrainian soldier, but what they are is they're unlimited and they can... Com- well, they just yeah. keep coming, yeah, they just well, keep exactly. turning up. Like Stalin said, uh, they've got fewer bullets than I have soldiers. Yeah, well, well, they do. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. It's very true. Bit of history there for you. Uh, front page of The Times, Ben. Uh, working from home, pushed to get more sick Britons off benefits. I don't know if this is a new story about benefits. Rishi Sunak is going to end the national scandal of too many people who are out of work. I mean, <coughs> successive Tory governments have been trying to do this for a while. Yeah. It never really works. It's, it? This is the problem with Sunak. He'll say it because it's a bit of red meat. It'll get yeah. people going, oh, great policy. But it's never going to happen, really, is it? No. I mean, he said he's going to stop the boats, what, a year ago. Right. They're still coming. He's well, I mean, one of the things it. that Jeremy Hunt, I think, said the other day was that he's going to hire loads more people to work in the Department yeah. of Work and Pensions. Um, in order to get the other people off off the dole, you're kind of going. So that's still going to cost us all the yeah. same amount of Why money. Why doesn't he just it? hire the people on the dole? Yeah. Well, that would that would cut out the middleman. You know. I mean, I, I, I mean, okay. the, I think the issue with a lot of this is that there is a case from, from, to defend Jeremy Hunt. There is a case that like an awful lot of these problem that schemes they're not monitored properly. Right. No. So go, you just end up handing money out. And you get this uh, also this inflationary problem. So there, there's some some welfare benefits, for example, there was one welfare benefit that was introduced. And it was like the special hard cases fund. It wasn't literally called that, but it was like it was meant to be for the most the most serious cases. And it ended up going to 80% of people, mm. right? Because yeah. the the people at the desk are like, oh well, I think you need it. Mm. And there's no central yeah. control. So there is a case for getting a grip. But ultimately, the hard truth about this is that you're the only way you ever really get people off is if you have hard pullouts, right? Yeah. And this is what the government has been talking about. They've been saying, if you refuse to engage, if you're on uh, yes. universal credit and you refuse to engage in job seeking, you'll, just you'll, stop. you'll lose eligibility. It's what they do now, in America. That People would... have six months of unemployment and then they have to find and a in, job. And in, guess what? They do. In principle, that would work. But the question is, is the government, when someone doesn't do it, and they actually, someone withdraws their money and someone sends around a journalist to their house and they're looking all hanged on, yeah. and like, well, I'm now going to, you know, I can't. Does the government have the will mm. to be like, actually, yeah. you didn't look for work? Tough. Yes, wasn't, wasn't they have so initially a temporary scheme yeah. after the war. Well, and it's just got, couldn't yeah. become like an hour. But the other like problem is, is that whenever they set up these these kind of you know monitoring units, they seem to never catch the people who know the yeah. system. They only catch the people exactly who actually it. do need the there money. There are far too many people on benefits in this country. And yeah. I, I, there was a really fantastic piece in The Spectator a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago even, by Fraser Nelson, which effectively looked at the amount of people that are currently on out-of-work benefits. 5.3 million people Ooh. of working age on out-of-work benefits. Now, this is, I think, a scandal. Forget about the fact that this is a huge waste of taxpayer money. It's a waste of human potential. Yeah. Yeah. These are people that could be working, could be contributing to this country yeah. that are not. And the reason why, the government, the incentive system, is not there. Mm. Well, if you can yeah. get more money by being on benefits than you can by getting a job, mm. then it makes it's not sense. much of an incentive to get a job, is it? if they try to get a job, they'll lose their benefits. Yeah, so exactly. In the short term, where they work up them. to making more money. The marginal tax, as you say, the marginal tax rate yeah. of working is 
often extremely yeah. bad. But also, this stuff is like mentally debilitating, right? If you if you work is good for you, once you've got a job, yeah, you think yeah. you can do it, yeah. you get more confident, you go for more jobs. Mm. If you spend a couple of years on unemployment, yeah. that yeah. sinks into oh, totally right. It, and it, 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 and, it, and 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 you and you you don't feel able to work, you're not confident, you're not developing skills. And that's a self-reinforcing cycle, which yeah. is how you end up with people trapped on it. Yeah. And the only, and you know, ultimately, the only way to get people out of that cycle is awesome. a bit of tough love. And it is love, yeah. right? It is like, well, you'll be better off. In the mail, Rishi working. Sunak is saying he wants to boost the economy by rewarding hard work, which is the same story, but slightly mm. different take on it. So I guess he means by that, that he's going to look after you if you go and get a job. Surely but, that's the job of the free market, not his job. That's where it gets well, tricky. Well, I suppose... You change the taxes. Just, just, exactly. just cut taxes. That's the way to do it. And sure. I suppose that's exactly what this, this story on the front page of the Daily Mail is sort of trying to get at here. It's talking about the fact that there is this kind of scope for tax cuts and I do think that yeah. now while yeah, just well, before an election yeah. well, I don't know. Time, just before an exactly. election they have tax cuts isn't that convenient that's how the economy yeah. works <laughs> well yeah. indeed because he's managed to get the inflation rate <laughs> down that's why yeah. <laughs> you know, it's all about natural economic forces you know what yeah. I found really funny that it used to so originally when Jeremy Hunt did that I don't know if you guys remember the, the sort of teacup analogy about, oh, yeah. about six right. months ago talking about the that was wine, awful it was awful patronising and he was yeah. talking about why inflation happens and he said well it's all of these global factors and now they're saying well the government fixed inflation yeah yeah was it global factors no. or was it the government? Well, exactly right. <laughs> this is always the case. It's right? always yeah. every, every, No matter what the government is, if there's bad yeah. economic news, it's like, well, I mean, have you seen the global Unavoidable. situation? Indeed. And then the moment you fix it, it's well, like... Well, we fixed this, it. Look at what we've done. This government's look at leadership. what we've done. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. A couple of interesting food stories. Um, microwave steak, apparently, um, oh, God. is something that we should be No, eating. no, no. Chefs often liberally season steak with salt before searing. A physicist has concluded they're wrong and they should just microwave it instead. I don't think I've ever microwaved a steak. Is there no end to this misery? God, I mean, no. I, I, I'm horrible. Yeah, we were talking about how horrifying the, you know that book was. Yeah, um, this is worse. This is, <laughs> this is another. Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? It's another Crazy. bloody scientist who thinks he knows better than everybody else. He's not even involved in food. Um, he's written a book about the science involved in cooking, but he normally focuses on advanced ceramics and composites. So what the hell does I mean, he know about cooking? I mean, this feels a bit like the scientist who developed the Segway, right? And it's like, this is the future of human yeah. transportation because I'm a scientist. It's like, yeah. no. 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 No, just leave it. I think we can't rule out that some scientists actually just hate humanity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They know the truth. And they're also geeks. I mean, yeah. you know, you were at school with people who were geeks yeah. and nobody talked to them and they went off and became scientists. You know, now they wear a white no coat and they, think they can tell us, and they think they can tell us all how we should be living. Indeed. Yeah. Well, I'm not putting any steak in the microwave, to be honest. No, I, I think this is morally I kind of, I kind stuff. of want to test it, but I don't know if I, if no. I could bring myself to do that to I a steak. I don't want to look at that Even in the name of science. Oh, I'll bring it away from you. Oh, my God. Well, the other one, for his mental horrible, health if he looks yeah. at the story. Well, the other one's a more historical one than it is um, scientific. <laughs> this is in the Times. Scientists may finally have solved a centuries-old mystery. Why is that some of us will get a splitting headache after drinking only a small amount of red wine, and it goes all the way back to ancient Rome. You'll be pleased to I love red wine. I think it is Do you? The best. What's your favourite red wine? A lovely glass of Merlot. Merlot. I, I, will, I will drink that uh, till I die. I think it's wonderful. And I think I, I'm sick of the public health lobby and all these random historians telling me that it's bad for me or telling me that it will give me a headache. I don't care. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is apparently it's a, genet- it's a genetic thing for some people. Oh, right. They just they just well, react very badly to it. They can make weak. those. They can it's make like port. I mean, port definitely gives you a headache if you drink too much of it. Well, they can make. I mean, those if you drink choices. too much of anything. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I can drink loads of red wine. I don't get a headache. But if I drink a bottle of port, you know. Well, I think we've just got. Some I suppose it's the bottle. I was going to say. I don't want to. I'm not talking about just a glass. 
I suppose the point of this is that Mike and I just have superior genes and that this is just survival yeah. of the fittest. That could be it. That could be it. But I wouldn't want to encourage that. I wouldn't want to encourage that sort of thing. But, uh, but listen, um, uh, picture of David Cameron on the front of the Times as well, as we said. Um, well, it's been a pleasure, all of you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank Henry you. Hill, uh, Reem Ibrahim, Ben Lochnane, of course, as well. Uh, that's all from me tonight. You've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Um, I'll see you tomorrow at 9pm. But in the meantime, uh, only on Talk TV. You can see everything you need to see between now and 9pm tomorrow night. Uh, don't forget Kevin O'Sullivan, who I'm going to give a hard time to when I see him tomorrow uh, because of the ridiculous promotion he's been doing uh, for another television channel, which we're not talking about. So there. So, O'Sullivan, I'm coming for you. Uh, I'll see you all later. Good night. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.